Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that's always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, April 7th. It is April 7th, 2022. Welcome back, Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Mark Hamilton, here to talk about all the latest news in Formula One. And we're in this little, little bit of in-between world right now, aren't we, Mr. H? Because free practice is at the Australian Grand Prix. The Australian Grand Prix is actually going to happen after being basically one of the first events to get canceled two years ago, the beginning of COVID. We're back in Australia. We're back in Melbourne. I'm totally excited. But before we talk about that, I am fantastic. And if I ever look distracted during this podcast, it's because I have a TV over my left shoulder and I have the broadcast on live. Thank you, F1 TV Pro app, for making it so easy to consume the Formula One product. I'm doing really, really good. And I have to say, it felt like a quiet news week for Formula One. And that's been a rarity in the last couple of years because even with COVID, there's been so much going on. And I think the timing was perfect for a little side project that you did, which you can speak to in a couple of minutes. But I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited for the Australian Grand Prix. I'm excited for this championship because it seems like we're seeing parity that we haven't seen. And there's still a couple of really cool news topics that we'll get to during the hour. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, did you uh, do the 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 lap around the revamped Albert Park circuit in the safety car? It's up on the F1 YouTube channel. Oh, it's fast. I'm really looking forward to this because, yeah, it is uh, looking fast. And let's be honest, it hasn't been the most exciting Grand Prix over the years. But I'm really hoping the way that they've streamlined this circuit, that it's going to make all the difference. And especially with all the close racing that we've seen through the first two races of the year. Fingers crossed that we're going to see more of the same in Melbourne this weekend. And if so, we're in for another treat. But before we get to that, we do have a very special guest is our good friend, Mr. Stuart Bell. He's an FIA accredited journalist. He lives in Melbourne. He's been back and forth to the circuit all week. I did talk to him a couple of nights ago, just as this uh, event was getting up and running, because, you know, what with the, was it like a 19 hour time difference right. between Vancouver and Melbourne? It's, it's, it's always a bit strange. Um, you know, years ago, I interviewed one of Canada's. Um, rugby players who was living in I'm not sure if it was Melbourne or Sydney anyways it was one of the, the first time I did an interview with uh, with somebody on that side of the world and I completely <laughs> I completely messed up when it came to the to the time change I said okay well we'll connect on such and such a date at such and such a time and I'm out in my car or something like that and I get a text and I'm like bro where are you I'm waiting for you and I'm like oh I thought we were doing this tomorrow and the the, the return answer was uh yeah haha it's already uh, it's already tomorrow here in Australia no problems we'll connect tomorrow at this time so a little bit of egg on my face but since then I've been a little bit more on top of it but enough from us I'm going to throw it to my conversation uh, with Stuart and just um just a little FYA I'm oh, sorry FYA FYI I uh, had some technical glitches here I had to resort to the backup track the audio isn't as quite a good quality as you guys are used to so in advance uh, apologies for that 
unfortunately, Stuart is uh, his his audio is much better than my side. Plus, he's the guy that you want to hear from. So, anyways, Mr. Stuart Bell, please take it away. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And joining us once again is our very good friend, uh, Stuart Bell. Stuart is a producer at The Inside Line. He's also an FIA-accredited Formula One journalist. He's written for news.com.au, 7 Sport, Motorsport Magazine, GP Racing, and a lot more. You can follow Stuart on, uh, sorry, at Stuart Bell F1, and that's Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, Bell, B-E-L-L, F1. And you can also check out their website at theinsideline.com. Stuart, it's a real pleasure. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well. Uh, looking forward to uh, the Australian Grand Prix after two fantastic races. I mean, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, blockbusters. So Australia is going to be another level and in this exciting new era of Formula One. In a, in a sense, we've almost come full circle. I mean, it's been almost exactly two years. I mean, you know, no pun intended. I mean, uh, the, the Australian Grand Prix in 2020 was almost ground zero when everything started shutting down. But here we are two years later. We're in a much better place. Things are tracking in the right direction. There's a lot of positivity going on. And I couldn't help but wondering how, what, what's the vibe like in the city right now? There, there must be some genuine excitement to have a big event uh, like uh, the, the, the Grand Prix. I know that the tennis uh, was held not so long ago but it, it's great to see it is i mean melbourne is is looking fantastic the circuit's looking great everyone's enjoying being out and about going to restaurants there's lots of a, a huge buzz in the city at a night when everyone's looking for, for for to have go out and have a drink or or have a great meal um there's a huge thirst for formula one uh of course as you said there's been the 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 um the australian open and before that we had the boxing day test for the cricket um, and we've had other events, but this, the Australian Grand Prix is a huge international event, and it's really our return to uh, to being to hosting world sport. And there is a huge following. The Australian Grand Prix pre-COVID was feeling n- not tired, but a little bit stable, but a little bit tired, I guess you could say. And and so, but on the back of a thrilling season last year and what we've seen uh, this year with the new era, along with shows like um, Drive to Survive from Netflix. The you know F1 is booming here. The, the circuit is you know the, the event is sold out for Saturday and Sunday. Friday is uh, ticket sales are uh, going you know strong. So it's going to be a capacity crowd for sure, and uh, everyone is looking forward to getting back out there to events that we haven't been able to go to for you know since the start of the pandemic. Well, that's wonderful to hear. So are they expecting a capacity crowd? Because I heard a couple of weeks ago that perhaps uh, they were, I know they're trying to tra- uh, attract a record crowd and maybe it wouldn't happen, but not for the reasons we've become accustomed to over the past couple of years. It was perhaps maybe a, more of logistics. So w- what kind of numbers can we expect to see in the stands over the next several days? Any idea? They've set 130,000 capped oh. numbers uh, yeah. per day, uh, but it's on hospitality industry staffing shortages. So, it, you know, it, it, during COVID, hospitality suffered very badly. And although lots of restaurants switched to takeaway and, and uh, delivery options, uh, a lot of people found other work. So they're recruiting uh, for all of the hospitality and catering uh, jobs still up all the way up to the, to the uh, event itself. Um, and maybe they will lift those those crowd numbers slightly with with more people recruited, but uh, it'll definitely be, be a capacity crowd. We're not expecting it to be uh, the the record 154,000, which they which they had in uh, 1996 for the first one. But I can tell you this: it will it will be a massive crowd at Albert Park, like we probably haven't seen in the modern era. So 
I expect that it will be chock-a-block, as we say in Australia, very, very, very busy, and it'll be great to see. Everyone will ha- be having a great time. Yeah, well, we're all excited to watch it, and it's it's going to be interesting as well because it's not quite the traditional time slot that we've been used to seeing the Australian Grand Prix fit into the schedule over the last, uh, well, as far as I could remember, I know at other times in the past, it wasn't always the start of the, the Formula One season, but perhaps even though with the revamped schedule, this is ideal because we've had two cracking Grand Prix to start the season, whereas in, in years gone by, with the, being the first race of the year, we always didn't know what to expect with the new cars and everything like that. But we've been treated to two very exciting races in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. And here we come back to Albert Park. The track's been revamped uh, for, for this year. So, but first of all, before we get into the, the, the race this weekend itself, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what we saw in Saudi Arabia, what we saw in, in, in Bahrain. Two exciting Grand Prix, as I said, and, and the brand new cars. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. Well, I think I think the brand new cars really have delivered. I mean, they wanted to have closer racing. They've they've certainly got that. They all wanted to, they wanted sexier cars that uh, kids are going to want to put on their bedroom walls again. I think they've delivered that. All the new cars look fantastic with a real variety of uh, of design philosophies right throughout the field. The racing's been close. Uh, obviously, to see Ferrari and Red Bull up front fighting tooth and nail was amazing. And Charles Leclerc to, to, to win in Bahrain, it really fires the, the excitement for a big season to see Ferrari back at the top, not languishing, uh, you know, in chasing mode as they have been or even well, well off the pace as they have been. And, but to see how in Saudi Arabia that Red Bull could come back and challenge the Ferraris, watching Max be patient, I mean, that's something we haven't seen uh, for, for a while. He's been the, the, the top gun pushing, you know, fighting tooth and nail for every place he's had. Um, but I think it's exciting. And to see the shuffling in the midfield, to see Haas and Alfa Romeo where they are, to see Alpine gunning both of those, um, it's it's exciting and it really bodes well for a thrilling season. And really, uh, on the back of last season where we every race was, almost every race was a thriller, there were some concerns that this year wouldn't be able to match that. Obviously, when you have a, a huge regulation change, the field spreads out again. Um, so, but I think we've... The first iteration of the new era has been fantastic. The racing through the midfield has been hard. And I think once Mercedes is able to solve its porpoising issues, uh, we'll see them rejoin or hopefully rejoin that fight and have three teams in the mix at the front, which is just unprecedented for F1. And to see a real competition is what we all want to see. That's what we want to see is fighting, battling all the way through the field, but especially up front. You know, as, as much as we've been treated to some fantastic racing through the first couple of races, I must admit I was quite disappointed to see the issues that Max Verstappen and, uh, and Sergio Perez had at Bahrain, especially in those last couple of laps. And I, I thought it was setting up nicely just the way that things had worked themselves out. And you had Sergio Perez in front of Lewis Hamilton with the last couple of laps to go. He had a mechanical issue. Max had the, the, the mechanical issue. And I couldn't help but feeling, oh, I'm disappointed now, but we still have 22 races to go. And uh, like you say, if Mercedes can figure out what uh, their their issues are and get the car set up and performing to what they expect and and what they believe it's capable of, we could uh, really be in for a, a real treat. But uh, I, I just uh, also like to get your take on the the, the first uh, two races of the year. Uh, who's hot? Who's not been hot? Who's 
over-delivered or who's been a pleasant surprise and, and who's left uh, a little bit to, to be desired through, you know, teams, drivers. I'm just curious. There's plenty of, uh, you know, good talking points only two weeks into the year. Absolutely. I think, I think I, I've been surprised by Sergio Perez over-delivering at Red Bull. Uh, he's more comfortable in the RB18 than Max is at the moment. So the fact to see him take that pole position lap in, in Jeddah was incredible. It was an astonishing lap that he, he said himself, you know, it was my greatest ever lap and that he couldn't, you know, replicate that w- with a thousand more laps. So that shows what sort of, you know, level he's delivering at. And he's pushed all the way from, from when he first joined Red Bull. He knew this was going to be his chance and he has given it everything to, uh, to be competitive there. On the other hand, Carlos Sainz, I've been a little bit disappointed with in getting to grips with, with that Ferrari. Charles Leclerc has been far more superior. Um, and that's that's been, you know, a really um, disappointing thing because I think we, we expected Leclerc and Sainz to be far more equal and, and for there to be uh, fireworks there, you know, right at the front, a la Rosberg and Hamilton, because I think that's what is coming once Sainz gets on, on terms with Leclerc if if they can get on terms, if, if science can can get on terms, then those two are going to be uh, bucking horns for sure. Um, but yeah, Russell, George Russell, his 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 performance at, at Saudi, five place five places higher, the theoretical best that that Mercedes is capable of. What an impressive start! The team is really impressed with 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 him. He knows the team really well. Obviously, he wrote, raced for them in 2020 at the Sakhir Grand Prix, almost won it. Uh, if not for a puncture and a, and a botch pit stop. Mm-hmm. Really impressive guy there. Um, and further down the field, Kevin Magnussen to come back in after a year out. So impressive. He is just I've, – I've listened to a few interviews with him and just to hear – he was very jaded. I spoke with him just before he retired from for the first time in F1 uh, at the end of 2020. He was very jaded uh, and a little bit so disappointed that, that he was closing that chapter. But he's come back with a renewed strength, having won a race in the IMSA series and more perspective. And, you know, he said that the car is a joy to drive. And um, that's exciting to see, you know, especially given he's also going to be pushing Mick Schumacher to be a lot stronger. And that's what he needs is someone, you know, a reference for him. So I've been impressed with with Kevin Magnussen as well. Um, Guan Yu Zhou or Joe Guan Yu as he's now, now known. Very impressive start for a rookie, the only rookie in the field, and up against Bottas, who is absolutely pushing himself very, very hard to be, you know, rejuvenate his career after a Mercedes. So uh, they're, they're some of the standouts for me. Uh, and But obviously there'll be more to come as we, we go through the season. Absolutely. There, there's some great stories. And uh, I, I couldn't help but thinking when you were just uh, talking about Sergio Perez that perhaps if he can continue what he's uh, delivered through the first couple of races of the season, that maybe, just maybe Red Bull will have that one-two punch like they had uh, several years ago with Max and uh, and Danny Ricardo. Well, obviously, we'll talk about Danny in uh, in a few more minutes here. I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on him. But um, let's look ahead uh, because there's some ch- changes to the track uh, that uh, were promised uh, last year. What is new in Albert Park and, and how do you think it's going to affect the racing this weekend? What, what can we expect? Well, I think there's been changes to most corners at, at Albert Park. Most of the corners have been either widened or straightened to, to provide more contestable corners to provide better racing to try and, uh, you know, um, penalise drivers if they get the corners wrong. But, you know, the big the big change is there's a turn six, which is the end of sector one. That's that's the, That's been cut 
uh, the apex has been cut basically straight there. It's going to be 70 k's, 70 kilometres an hour faster than it was mm. previously. And then we've obviously lost that, that back chicane at what was turn 9 and 10, and that's now an extended uh, back straight with uh, a, a higher top speed of 330 kilometres per hour. The best thing is they haven't lost the character of the of the track, what it was. It was a beautiful circuit. Unfortunately, it wasn't great for passing. And in the past, in the last three events, we only had 18 uh, passes after the first lap and only one pass for the lead, which I think it was 2002 Montoya on Schumacher. So that's hmm. that's, that's not good in terms of stats and not, not what we want to see in, in F1's new era. So I think the stars are aligned with all the changes to the track and the changes to the car. It bodes well for, for strong racing, but they've, as I said, they've designed it with more contestable corners so that drivers are, are racing each other, battling each other into more corners, and also that if they get it wrong, then they're penalised. So it's exciting. We don't know what's going to happen. There's four DRS zones. All the stars, as I said, are aligned. We just have to wait and see see how it's how it's gone. But they've consulted with with all the drivers. Daniel Ricciardo today said he's had a hand in those changes, and he, he's excited for what's to come. So all the ingredients are there for the right result, and you know the event will be bigger than ever. But the racing, I think, to, for for its long term future and for everyone who loves Albert Park, we want to see better racing, and certainly they've done everything they can to do that. Well, that's great. And, you know, the, I, I couldn't help um, but, but think, too, I mean, there was some talk in recent years that perhaps there might be some renewed uh, push or some interest to maybe bring the race back to to Adelaide. But, you know, you obviously would know a little bit more about that. Is is the race set to stay in Melbourne for for the long term or is is it just not realistic to expect it to to move back to Adelaide, where which, you know, was its home for a very, very long time as well? Of course, and I've been to Adelaide for the Clipsal 500, for the the Adelaide 500, or whatever you want to call it, with the Supercar Series. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful track. It, you can feel the ghost of the past there with, with Formula One. There's real heritage there. But hmm. Adelaide is a, is it's it's the capital of South Australia, but it is a small, effectively a country town for a capital city. It's got it's it's small. And the other thing that the the, the track that they used to use. Um, took in two of the main thoroughfares into the city, and after F1 left, they've they cut the cut the circuit. Uh, so the one that they they've used for for uh, the touring cars has been only used one of those thoroughfares, and I think Adelaideans, as they're known, would would not be very happy uh, to to have all of their major thoroughfares of the city cut for the Grand Prix. But mm. I think F1 has outgrown Adelaide. In all in all honesty, Melbourne is the place. To, to be everything's set up here it's a big city for sport it's a big city for hospitality it's a big city for music it's 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 got yes sydney has the the opera house and the, and the harbour bridge but we have the culture and the and the sport mad fans and all the hotels and everything that f1 needs to to stay here so there was a push last year for a potential move to sydney it would have to be an amazing circuit for it to, to, to snare it away. It would have to go over the Harbour Bridge. But uh, I really do think that the, the circuit here has cemented the changes. They've invested $20 million in track changes. They've resurfaced the track completely. So I think for all intents and purposes, Melbourne is the home. Melbourne is where it will stay. And, you know, we can't say that with 100% certainty, but all those answers point to it staying in Melbourne long term. 
So Melbourne's a, a big city that's uh, used to putting on big, uh, big events. And uh, I guess uh, we, we could maybe segue, maybe somewhat awkwardly, into big personalities. And one big personality would be Danny Ricardo, obviously a big, vibrant uh, fellow and uh, very personable. And um, I'd love to hear what, um, you know, Danny obviously had a bit, bit of a mix 2021. Pardon, I was going to say 2020. <laughs> Lost all track of time here during the last uh, two years. But anyways, his first year with McLaren was a little bit uh, hit and miss. I mean, that wonderful win in Monza it was an epic weekend and an epic uh, result uh, for the team but by and large he struggled to you know struggled in the car and struggled to match his teammate this year we see him a little bit closer to to lando but as we've seen through the first couple of races through the season mclaren appears to be one of the teams that i wouldn't say is on the outside looking in but they obviously haven't quite figured it out compared to a lot of the 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 other teams so what do you think is happening with both daniel and uh, mclaren at the moment I mean, for Daniel, I, I saw him a few hours ago uh, looking in great shape, very, very lean. Um, he's hungry for, for, for better results. He said that himself, you know, I would love a, I love a win or a podium here, but it's just not possible right now. Last year, he took a lot of time to get used to that MCL 35M. It didn't suit his braking style. and it, You know, he was very, very happy at McLaren. He's very happy with that team and how they treat him. How you know he feels at home there, but um, that car didn't suit him well. He was destroyed on stats by Lando Norris. I think it was fourteen seven in qualifying, mm-hmm. fifteen eight in the races when when they could be compared. Yes, he got that win in Monza ahead of uh, Lando, and it, but he he uh, Lando earned forty five more points, which is what it's all about. So he has a big mountain to climb this year. To I mean, especially with Lando signing a new contract with the team, that's. Um, you know, that shows that, that Lando is an important part of McLaren's future. And to some extent, Dan needs to do that as well. Um, so this car, it's, you know, it lacks downforce, brake uh, break issues. And, um, you know, he wasn't happy with the, with the Bahrain performance. Saudi suited the car a little bit better. And he thinks the same will be uh, applied here in Melbourne. But He's fighting for points. He's fighting for a point. I mean, he was he was fourteenth in Bahrain and obviously DNF'd uh, the last race in Saudi. So he needs to get some points on the board and fast, and he needs to be ahead of Lando each and every time. But that is going to be a huge, huge challenge for him. So he's got it all to do. I mean, he must he must question why he left Red Bull. I can understand mm-hmm. that Honda was coming, you know, a, a sort of a, a question mark over their performance, given what they'd done previously with McLaren. Max was, the team was increasingly being built around Max, but to then move from Renault where he had sort of a failed, failed campaign with Renault and then to switch, jump into McLaren, he must start delivering. Uh, otherwise, I mean, they're not going to drop him, but it, it just affects his credibility. And so he needs to come back strong this year. And he knows that. So it's about, yeah, just starting restarting his season here in Melbourne. Well, I certainly hope that he has a better start or a better Australian Grand Prix than was it 2018 or 2019 when he even failed to make it to the starting grid. Did, did he not retire on the on the warm-up lap? Well, what, what year was that? I think that was 2018. And then 2019 yeah. when he was at Renault, he, uh, he hit that sort of grassy verge uh, on the run down to turn one. So, that's um, correct, yeah. So that was another really disappointing because that's just such an anomaly. I mean, that, that piece of... Uh, concrete now has been completely covered, so that can't happen again to anyone. Um, but he's had he's had a lot of tough 
tough times here, but I think the home crowd, everyone's behind him. Everyone wants to see Dan do well. Obviously, they, they can't wait to see Oscar Piastri coming, you know, after him. He'll be on the grid next year. But Australians love to support their own, as does every every country on the planet. Uh, so he'll have plenty of support here, and everyone wants to do, him to do well. So a, a podium is likely out of – well, it's not likely. It is out of the question unless something crazy happens. But we want to see him do, get some points on the board and, and uh, to boost that confidence going to Imola. Well, that, that's a great question. Now, uh, you, you said uh, barring something crazy happening this uh, weekend. So the, 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 the one thing that immediately comes to mind that can flip a Grand Prix upside down would be, a, would be the weather. What is the weather forecast for the days ahead? I mean, the weather, in terms of weather, there is, there is rain um, uh, predicted for Sunday. Um, but it's beautiful today. Today is absolutely gorgeous in terms of um, just a beautiful summer, sort of autumnal day, I should say. Tomorrow is 24, top of 24, sunny, 23, sunny on Friday, Saturday, 26. So it's perfect, perfect temperature. And then Sunday, uh, 26, but rain. So whether that falls during the race, who knows? But um, there's a chance for a mix-up there for sure. And if there is rain, then that, that allows Dan to, to come through the field or any any driver uh, to come through the field and use their wet weather skills, as we've seen from Max Verstappen and others. You know, but, but before we end our conversation, Stuart, I'm just going to let you think on this one before I ask you, uh, you know, to make your uh, prediction uh, for, for the race itself. But you just mentioned uh, Oscar Piastri. Do you believe that uh, it's just a question of time before we see him in Formula One? I mean, he was certainly his name was thrown about um, you know, quite a bit last year that he could be uh, joining, uh, you know, joining a Formula One team in a drive uh, for this year. Absolutely. He is a three straight titles, Formula Euro Cup, Formula 3 and Formula 2. Formula 3 and Formula 2 in his rookie season, you don't do that unless you're absolutely talented. He's up against, he was up against top talent in those fields. He, he's, his time is coming, and that's not just me as an Australian saying that. Uh, it's that sort of calibre uh, we've seen from Lewis, we've seen from Charles Leclerc, George Russell, Nico Hulkenberg, Roman Grosjean, those those drivers all uh, absolutely um, delivered in the junior categories, and obviously delivering an F one is a completely different story. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do expect him to be on the twenty three grid. Maybe not at Alpine. Maybe Alpine will farm him out. I mean, they've already said that he is open to for any COVID call ups, uh, a la McLaren, uh, which was offered to him. Uh, but you know, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I think. Yeah, it it would be very, it would be really ridiculous to not have him on the grid, given his his credentials in the in the junior categories. He's been, he's like a juggernaut, ready for his charge. So, um, you know, whether it will be Alpine, whether Alonso will continue, you would think that he would. But um, if if Renault starts supplying another engine to to another team, potentially there might be an option there. So we'll see what happens. But yeah. you know, given his credentials, he's he's a lock on the uh, twenty three grid. Yeah, watch this space, uh, as they say. Now, Stuart, uh, based on the the huge sample that we have of uh, two races with the brand new cars, uh, I'm going to ask you now to make a bold prediction. Who do you think uh, may do well this uh, weekend? Do you have you seen enough out of the new cars to make a prediction that the uh, you know Albert Park may suit uh, this car more than that car? Is it a little bit too, too early to tell? I mean, Ferrari and Red Bull have uh, obviously been the two standouts uh, in, in the first couple of races, so we would expect that to to continue, but. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I think we're going to see a repeat of Saudi. I mean, it's it's not obviously the ultimate 
fastest outright, you know, sort of flat-out blast like Monza or Saudi. But it, the changes to Albert Park make it one of the top five fastest in the world now, so or on the on the on the calendar at least. Uh, so I would say that we will see Verstappen right at the front with Leclerc. Uh, whether he can get past. I would say that Leclerc is the favourite, followed by Verstappen. Um, but anything can happen, especially if there's wet weather. Haas are hoping for a podium. You know, who, who knows if it, what will happen if that's the case. But I would say Charles Leclerc will be my my favourite for the race win, followed by, by Verstappen. But if Carlos Sainz can, can bring it up there as well, he's in contention. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing the race uh, this weekend in Melbourne. I mean, after Saudi and all the changes, I, you know, Stuart, I, I just, maybe it's just me, but I didn't feel comfortable watching that race, especially after Mick Schumacher had that big moment on Saturday. You know, they, despite the, you know, the, the improvements, quote unquote, that they made, that said uh, that track, I find a little bit frightening. So I, I'm looking forward to getting back to a track that I think that uh, both fans and drivers are maybe a little bit more at ease, ease with. So. Anyways, well, Stuart, wonderful to, to talk to you once again. It's uh, been a while since we last uh, connected. Uh, would you, uh, before we, uh, we, we, uh, we part company again, would you please remind everybody where they can find you online? Sure. Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me on the show. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at StuartBellF1 uh, and on Instagram as well, same, same uh, username. So, um, and the Inside Line is on YouTube as well. So if you'd like to see what we're doing there, just go to YouTube and search for the Inside Line. Wonderful, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just a short moment after a quick message from our sponsors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Mark. Well, here we go. We're back again. Uh, you know, sorry for the people on YouTube. Uh, you know, if you want, want, want to hear that interview with Stuart, you're going to have to go back and uh, listen to the podcast. So check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere where you download and listen to your podcast. It's just easier to do it that way. <laughs> so a bit of a, a disjointed uh, live stream. So anyways, it is what it is. But Mark, you know, 
Stuart made a lot of uh, really, really good points. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you expect? And I, you know, it's a bit of an unfair question because I asked him what were the changes that we've seen in, you know, made to the track uh, this year for the, for, for the Australian Grand Prix. Who do you think, or which car is going to be most suited to this uh, new track, you know, based on a huge sample set of uh, two, two Grand Prix and under our belt. But I think that, uh, you know, unless Mercedes has really figured it out and has really dialed in that car since uh, Saudi Arabia, it will probably still be what we've seen through the first couple of races. It's going to be Red Bull. It's going to be Ferrari. But, you know, I, I can't help uh, but and it seems a little bit sort of like counterintuitive uh, for me to say this because secretly, well, not so secretly, I've been saying for years I want to see somebody else uh, challenging Mercedes. But wouldn't it be a real treat if a Mercedes could get that car dialed in so we have a three-way fight at the front of the field? It's not just Mercedes and it's not just Red Bull or Ferrari occasionally fighting with them but wouldn't that be wonderful we saw more parity between all three of these teams and all six of those drivers fighting that uh, race in right race out i mean we'll wait and see this weekend i mean we we're, we're just starting up the practice but wouldn't that be something? it's a little disappointing though that we want to be excited about having potentially three teams competing for a championship when really we should be hungry for so much more and based on what we've seen from the early returns on the new regulations, like maybe we're going to get there where it's not going to be one or two or maybe three, but maybe four or five or or six. And we're inching closer and closer. I just want to give a shout out to Stuart. You know, I'm I'm known for being awfully critical of the FIA credentialed media sometimes, particularly those associated with Sky TV, because I don't often think they're critical enough of the business and some of the teams and and Formula One and the FIA. Stewart's one of the good guys. This guy is a world-class journalist and writer and an absolute class act. And big shout out to him because this isn't the first time he's made an appearance on our show. And every time you've reached out to him in the past, he's always been generous with his time. So really, really happy he could come on. Just a quick shout out to our live chat as well. As we're recording right now, Ray is in the live chat, in the live stream, literally at the Australian Grand Prix right now in the grounds waiting for free practice two to begin. So we're our, our listenership is penetrating the globe as we speak. So very, very cool. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Ray, make sure you hold up your your, your phone if you're watching the live stream. Maybe, just maybe you'll get on the big screen there. <laughs> Sameless self-promotion. Here. Uh, oh, oh, my gosh. Anyways, Mark, let, let's talk and uh, about some of the, the, the news. You put a, a really good um, outline together for the show this week. So Audi and Porsche have confirmed, officially confirmed, that they are interested in, in Formula One, uh, but they will wait to make a final decision until the 2026 power unit rules are finalized so again it's kind of more of the same but at least there's no speculation this is right from the horse's mouth so to so to speak these rumors have been out there for what months if not almost a year now and i wouldn't say i'm disappointed i would say that this announcement that we're going to wait and see before we formally commit makes sense because we still don't know what these uh, power units are going to look for putting the 2026 20, and beyond and i think uh, I, I think it's a really positive uh, development i hope that they're uh, they're is keen to uh, still enter the sport in 2026 once these uh, new um, these new rules are finalized. But it's very positive. What's yeah, I'm probably not going to be quite as generous. I'm getting a little bit tired and a little bit frustrated with this. This seems to be a never-ending saga. And I think for a lot of our listeners, this only goes back <laughs> 6, 12, 18 months. But for anyone that's been watching Formula One, this goes back 
decades. And every time we thought they were close in the past, they bail, they disappear, they vanish. And they were close during the first phase of the turbo hybrid era and they bailed and now they're close again. And it's ironic that they keep stating that we're going to hold off until the new engine formula is finalized. So the, the formula, meaning the actual spec, the list, the construct, the design of the engine, they want to wait till it's finalized so that they can commit because it's got to meet certain criteria. But it's ironic because they're so heavily influencing the design. And, you know, we talk in the past about the fact that the current engine formula is really a hybrid concept and you have two separate hybrid systems that are simultaneously in a way feeding each other, but also feeding a battery so the car can draw electrical power. Well, the principal piece of that electrical system, this the principal hybrid component is called the MGUH, and it draws heat and electricity, in essence, from wasted turbo exhaust and the heat from turbo exhaust. And it generates roughly 65% of all the electrical energy in the car. And they demanded that this be removed. And all the other teams who spent millions and millions of dollars designing this and implementing it agreed. So that was a pretty major concession. And then furthermore, they're demanding that a significantly higher percentage of the total power that these cars generate come from electrification. And then they want the fuel to be purely a biofuel or purely a synthetic fuel. So they continue demand and demand. And the team so far have been very generous in making those concessions. I'm just... I don't know how much more they can ask. And some of the things that they're asking for are somewhat hypocritical, right? Like the MGUH creates the majority of the electrical energy that these cars house, and they've demanded it be removed. And they're also demanding that the new engine formula create even more electrical power as a percentage of the total power that the car generates. So it's a little bit little bit interesting. Now, there are some artificial limitations on the MGUK, which is the system that derives power from wasted um, brake energy, but I find it a little bit interesting. The other thing that I, I fear that they're also going to start demanding, and this is something that I think our listeners maybe might find interesting, but as you all know, because I talk about it all the time, I'm a huge MotoGP fan. MotoGP currently has six manufacturers, six different companies that are producing engines for that series. Yamaha, Honda, Suzuki, Ducati, KDM, and Aprilia. And KDM and Aprilia are tiny manufacturers relative to Honda and Suzuki and Ducati. But in MotoGP, they have what's called a concession system. And the concession system is a system designed to encourage new manufacturers or new engine manufacturers to enter the sport. And it does so by lessening the blow of competitive parity. So for instance, a typical team in Formula One or in Formula One and MotoGP gets seven engines per year and very limited testing time to test and design their engines. A new team, so a new team entering MotoGP gets nine engines in a year, plus they get virtually unlimited testing time. So as a means to get them up to speed quicker and lessen some of the blow from the lack of competitive parity because they're not coming out of the gate kind of without an advantage or with an uneven advantage, they built in all these measures to help get new teams up to speed quicker. So my fear with the Volkswagen group is not only that they're going to continue to demand changes to the formula to make it equitable to them, but also potentially they could start demanding other types of concessions. And it works for MotoGP. And in principle, it would work in Formula One. I just don't necessarily have as much sympathy for one of the biggest manufacturers in the world in, in Volkswagen needing those incentives. Like KTM and Aprilia, who are the teams that really benefited from the 
MotoGP concession series, they are absolute minnows compared to a company like Volkswagen entering Formula One. So it's annoying me that they're dragging this out so long. I get it. I find it ironic that they're waiting for the final specification because they're effectively dictating what that specification is. I just hope that the rest of the sport doesn't allow them to force concessions that would give them an added advantage when they come into the sport. Sort of ramble. I went on a little bit. No, no, no. No, that's okay. I mean, uh, you know, thanks for adding some uh, color to that. Uh, I just want to read here from a statement that, that came up from uh, a spokesperson for the VW Group, and uh, it goes as follows: "Quote: The management and supervisory boards of Volkswagen AG, Porsche AG, and Audi AG have confirmed plans for a possible entry into Formula One by the two brands. Brands, the Audi and Porsche brands will provide details later. This gives our company the opportunity to demonstrate the motto Vorsprung durch Technik." lead by technology in the pinnacle of motorsport from 2026. We have not yet made a formal decision as we are currently in the final evaluation phase. At the moment, the new regulations for 2026 and beyond are not yet available. It will bring about profound changes to make the sport more sustainable, which is a prerequisite for Audi's possible entry. Audi Sport is in direct discussion with the FIA on this matter. Our decision will be announced as soon as it is made, end quote. So, yeah, it's interesting what uh, those discussions that Audi are having with the FIA. Obviously, if that is their you know prerequisite is sustainability obviously they want some clarity or perhaps <clears throat> maybe a little bit of a direction on where they're going and uh, with the the, the the regs for the 2026 power units maybe they want uh, maybe not so much a confirmation but maybe as good as they're going to get so they can make some uh, informed uh, decisions but it's also interesting too if you just read some of the rumors that are out there i mean the Porsche Red Bull thing that that rumor's been out there for a long time we've been talking recent uh, weeks that Audi might be going in uh, with McLaren or maybe even buying out McLaren it sounds like now to uh, according to some of the reports in Germany that this is now not going to happen in any shape way or form and it seems now that if Audi comes in, they're going to be ahead. Now, get this uh, on a list that is topped by Sauber slash Alpha, uh, Alpha Romeo, Williams and Aston Martin. So those, are, you know, the Williams one, maybe not a, so much of a surprise because that's one that we've been looking at. Sauber, I guess, is another obvious one. But the Aston Martin one, that's that's kind of interesting considering all these kind of links that Aston Martin and Mercedes have and Toto Wolf and Lawrence Stroll kind of have the way that they've been investing into these two companies and the way that uh, Mercedes is also providing them with technology for the road cars. I mean, there, there's a lot of different connections uh, between the two. So I was I was surprised that Aston Martin has made that list, but and, and now Sauber slash Alfa Romeo. But uh, Williams, not so it's much. super game, right? fascinating, right? Like the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this uh, reported marriage between Porsche and Red Bull that Porsche would effectively take over the Red Bull powertrains division. And I think that's probably going to happen. But all of the news, all of the reports, all of the leaks were very much that Audi was trying to buy McLaren, which would include the Formula One team and the road car division. The road car division presumably would be integrated into the bigger Volkswagen Auto Group. There was a report earlier this week that some of those initial offers, rumored to be around $500 million, 500 million euros, had been rebuffed by McLaren. Uh, it was reported earlier this week that Audi went back with a much bigger, richer offer, which was also reportedly rejected. And now there's rumors of a potential tie-up with Sauber or Williams or Aston Martin. I still think that the best move or the smartest move might be a Williams 
tie up. The Sauber one makes sense again. And for those of you listening at home, you might be a little bit confused at, hey, what's what's Volkswagen going to do with Alfa Romeo? And why would Alfa Romeo Sauber be interested in this? Just, just remember that the Alfa Romeo branding on that car is purely advertising. It is purely a marketing exercise. It is not yep. a works team at all. They buy their power units from Ferrari. All of that can be changed very, very quickly with limited notice. The Aston Martin one, though, is is a bit of a shock because in the last few weeks, we've heard that A, they're very happy with their Mercedes relationship. B, crack the team principal was very clear that they would be interested in exploring developing their own power unit. And now C, three, there's potential rumors of them partnering with, with Audi and the Volkswagen Auto Group, which is fascinating because the Aston Martin road car division is significantly interbred and integrated within the Mercedes road car division, their gearboxes, their power units, their switch gear, their electronics, all of that are sourced for the most part from Mercedes. So very, very, very fascinating. I'm interested to see where this goes. And for those of you that didn't listen to our podcast last week, the other big story that broke, and this isn't official, but it it seems like there was dissension within the Volkswagen ranks and that Audi was expecting to co-build a power unit with Porsche. That rumor is now destroyed. And it looks like Audi and Porsche will be developing potentially their own power units within the championship. So it wouldn't be Audi and Porsche sharing a platform and a powertrain. They would be developing rival powertrains, which is incredibly interesting. Yeah. And uh, as you were talking there, I was just uh, looking at some of the, the notes that, uh, that you had. You had a, a link to an article on um, from a German uh, website. Uh, where was it? Uh, Automotor und Sport.de. Um, yeah. And it, it basically says, I mean, I'm not going to translate the whole thing. Can you please? Sauber has... Yeah, I, I could, but I, I don't think that the listeners want to sit here for the next uh, 15 minutes as I break down each <laughs> a little bit. So I, in a nutshell, uh, basically what uh, what the article says is out of those three teams that Sauber has risen to the top of that list. And, you know, that, that would be really interesting because Sauber, I mean, they've had an interesting, interesting history. In oh, say it. They, say the name. Sorry, which which, which I know where you're going with this, and I'm I'm already excited. Which German sports car producer were they already married to at one point, and then divorced? No, oh, yeah, the BMW, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the thing was with BMW. I mean, they basically joined up with, with Sauber. I mean, it was at one point we basically thought that that would become like a BMW works team, and then they kind of left the sport with their yeah. tail between yeah. the legs. And I don't think we'll ever see BMW in Formula One again because before that, remember they supplied engines to Williams for oh, a right. at, the, at the turn of the twenty at, at the two thousands, right? Because, I, yeah, I mean, so if you go back to the Ralph Schumacher, Juan Pablo Montoya era, that's when they brought, you know, brought those uh, or brought them on as en- engine suppliers, right? But, yeah, I mean, they, they've had an interesting history. I mean, if you kind of go back then to the uh, the era when Kubica was with the, with them, sort of like would be about 2006, seven ish thereabout. What was the year that he had the big shunt in, in Montreal? Was that 2000? Yeah, I think so. Seven, yeah. That, so. Yeah, about that, and then they've they've kind of they've they've been up and down in their time in Formula One. But if they were to partner with a, a big big engine supplier like Audi, you know that they're not going to come in and do it really sort of half heartedly. 
So that would be an interesting partnership because you would expect that Audi would have stipulations that, okay, if we're going to partner with you, we're going to bring the absolute best engine that we can. But, you know, you're going to have to design and build the car that is capable to deliver what we expect from it performance wise. So that might be a decision that, you know, the, the, the folks at Sauber may not want to you know, over promise and then under the uh, deliver. But I was, you know, honestly, out of those three names on that list, Williams, Sauber and Aston Martin, I'm kind of surprised at least at this point in time that they're the one that's kind of risen. I think one of the things we should think about, especially when we talk about these tie-ups with a big engine manufacturer, an automotive manufacturer in a smaller team is that sometimes these relationships aren't so good, right? Like if we flash back in time, 13, 14 years, you had the Martin Whitmarsh and Ron Dennis led McLaren team, and they were they were very much a, a collaboration with Mercedes, right? That those that title-winning car in 07 and that hyper-competitive car in, sorry, com- I should clarify the con- closely contending car in 07 and the title winning car in 08 were fueled by a Mercedes power unit and they were absolutely in a league of their own. And of course, there was all kinds of cheating scandals, Spygate and Ligate, and they were involved in all kinds of shenanigans and craziness. But that said, the most reliable part of the entire package was this phenomenal Mercedes engine. And in that case, Merce- McLaren themselves weren't particularly collaborative, right? Like y- you got to think about it this way. Mercedes were paying half of the bills and it's been reported even more in terms of the development of the car. They were providing free power units to McLaren. They had no say in the drivers. And then when McLaren were fined $100 million from the FIA for cheating, Mercedes picked up half that bill. So when Mercedes did finally develop their own works team. It didn't come as a surprise. And I think somebody's going to write a book one day that will reflect the fact that the only reason there was ever a Mercedes works team to begin with when they bought Braun, the only reason that ever happened was because the relationship was so mismanaged from a, a McLaren perspective with Ron Dennis and Martin Wishmart Whitmarsh. They absolutely and fundamentally mishandled that entire relationship and it should never have gotten to that stage. But that's that's for a, another day, I think. I was just going to say, I mean, you had the $100 million fine for Spygate and all those shenanigans, as you put it so politely. And then think about the, what was it, the $100 million or pounds or whatever it was that they had to pay to um, to Honda to end that engine deal to get out so they could switch oh, to Renault power there a couple of Man, oh man. I mean, talk about the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they've had like previous generations of management at that team have had to pay out for poor business decisions or just complete and utter naughty. There is, and I recommend everyone read this. There is an article that was in Wired Magazine in the late 2000s that was specifically about the entire Spygate shenanigans with Ferrari and McLaren. I'll tweet it out later today, but it is a phenomenally, phenomenally interesting look at how some of these teams were being run pre-global recession. It was the wild, wild west in terms of sponsorships, in terms of pushing the limits of the regulations and, and just some really questionably ethically inappropriate things happening in this sport. But I feel like it's getting better, potentially, maybe. Well, let's uh, let's hope. Uh, at least what we're seeing on the uh, the, the public. Yeah, side. yeah. What's what's happening <laughs> in the paddocks? We don't know. Years ago. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, guys, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Mark's favorite uh, topic, and that is about uh, the Wish and Winnow or Winnow branding on the Ferrari cars, because apparently they're back. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We've got a short break to hear a quick message from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Is always up to speed with Formula One, Mark and Mark, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton, talking about the latest Formula One news. Mark, I talked about it just before the break, and I saw your eye rolls. They rolled so far back in your head, I thought you were going to topple over off the back of your chair, but this is a funny one. Uh, Ferrari surprised everybody a couple of months ago when they launched the F1-75, their 2022 championship contender. It didn't have the wish and winnow. Can, can we just settle this once and for all i don't know is it win now or winnow? it's winnow it's winnow but it yeah. is it winnow no okay so, <laughs> i just didn't want to correct you i guess it is bad <laughs> well it just uh, seems a little bit uh, kind of funny because i see win totally now and you know anyways anyways it is um it's basically a friend for Philip Morris International. Obviously, that is a tobacco uh, company. It's uh, it sounded like it was off, um, you know, the the branding of the cars. But it sounds like it's coming back. It's um, yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, especially in this day and age. I mean, of course, there was an era when there was so much tobacco sponsorship on Formula One cars. You know what's interesting though? If you even see, say, some of the uh, historic f1 cars if you see some of the mclaren contenders from the 80s and the 90s and the williams they had like the marlboro or the camel sponsorship all over if you see those historical cars now they still have the 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 colors on them but even those logos are long long gone it's it's really funny how it's it's it they've been completely erased from formula one history i mean you can go back in the archives and see pictures and and clips of old races or into the f1 tv uh, archives and watch old races and of course it's all there and all its uh, you know prominence but interesting how it's all been erased but somehow it still comes up in this covert shady manner on the ferrari yeah a couple of months ago i had actually canceled a pre-order that i had on a nicholas latifi william 750th Grand Prix celebratory uh, helmets because if you remember last year at Monaco, oh, they Monaco. rocked this really neat livery and it was a throwback to the early yeah. the early nineties. And I actually canceled yeah. it because I like I don't know if I necessarily want to be rocking or displaying a piece of memorabilia in my house that is clearly a homage to a tobacco company. So I actually canceled it and got the 2020 or 2021 helmet, which has the Toronto skyline on it. But you know, flashback to February of this year, I was ecstatic and I was so excited that 
I could actually be excited for Ferrari and want to cheer for this team. Some likable people, some likable drivers. The team seemed to be doing the right things on and off the track. And that horrendous Mission Winnow logo that was made all the worse for 2021 because they made it neon green and put it at the top of the side pods. It was it was horrendous, but I was super, super excited because I thought it was gone. And it felt a little bit surreal. And I honestly didn't actually believe it was gone until the merch started shipping and people started posting on Twitter and Instagram. Like, I just got my new Ferrari jacket. I got my new Ferrari t-shirt, my new Ferrari mm-hmm. polo. And it was free of any tobacco advertising. And I was so excited about this. Right. So when I saw the, and it was actually a, a decal spotter tweet on the 1st of April last week. At first, I thought it was an April Fool's joke. Like it seemed like a really great April Fool's joke. But as the day went on, it became clear and clear that this was real. And I just, I kind of want to read to everybody what Mission Winnow is because I still don't necessarily understand it myself. And I'm also a little bit conflicted because I don't know that I necessarily want to be giving them free press. But at the same time, I think it's important for people to recognize that Mission Winnow, for all intents and purposes, is surrogate sponsoring for a gigantic tobacco company, Philip Morris International. But if you actually go to Mission Winnow, and please don't do it, I've done it for you, I've taken the hit. If you go to their website, (laughs) this is what Mission Winnow declares themselves to be. And I quote, Mission Winnow is a change lab focused on reframing global conversations, sparking open debate, connecting people and supporting the realization of innovative ideas. As a change lab, Mission Winnow provides environment for ambitions and progressive ideas that promote positive change to be shaped and developed. It's the role of a change lab to uncover and recognize these innovative ideas and create discourse around them to find common ground, find the flaws through open debate, and come together to find the best way to move forward. The vision permeates all of our work in delivering progress or driving progress. It's BS. It's total BS. Their ambition is that they recognize that the traditional tobacco industry is fading away and their ambition, their goal, their mission is to drive e-tobacco products, e-cigarettes. That's what this is all about. It's a surrogate sponsor for Philip Morris International. Ferrari should be ashamed. And quite frankly, Liberty should be looking to root this out. And again, I'm not just going to put Ferrari on blast here because McLaren, who has arguably the most popular merchandise in the entire paddock, is doing the exact same thing with their A Better Tomorrow. If you've ever looked at the or McLaren merch and wondered what that means, it's the exact same thing. So shame on Ferrari, shame on McLaren. It's 2022. Money is pouring into Formula One. Surely you can find a big tech company that would happily replace them. Yeah, you would think so. Did you enjoy the way I read that, by the way? Uh, I was just going to say, I, th- I think the tone of voice, I think the technical description of that tone is, is stunning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, well, well Thank you. Uh, I, I think that uh, you were able to, um, you know, voice or um, yeah, I guess voice, vocalize your, 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 your dislike of the whole situation. You're welcome. All right, let's move on to the next one. So Formula One is telegraphing a move that won't please American TV viewers. Do you want to discuss this one a little bit, uh, Mark? This is all about the the TV rights and things like yeah. that. And, you know, this is a little bit more of your patch. Right yeah, and, and I think to, to frame it up as simply as possible, uh, back five or six years ago, Formula One was carried in the US by NBC. And NBC made a, a good effort with the product. And, and I feel like they did a pretty good job of presenting 
Formula One to the American audience. Their timing was terrible, though, because they exited the Formula One business right before Drive to Survive hit and right before the pandemic hit, which is a period where Formula One interest was stimulated because people were at home looking for things to watch. ESPN stepped in. It's It's been largely established that they are paying virtually nothing for the rights. It was just that important for F1 to have their content on a major uh, network in the US that they were willing to effectively give it away. Formula One has now established after several years of Drive to Survive, after several years of increasing ratings, and after having re-upped the contract a number of times, I think they recognize that their property now has significant value. And like I said last week, one of the big reasons that Formula One and Liberty have been so, so hot on the idea of getting as many races into the United States as possible is by creating regional presence, you stimulate interest in TV networks. So if you have a race in the Midwest and you have a race in the South and you have a race in the Southeast, you create these pockets of interest because Formula One becomes more regionalized. And then it's much easier to sell the sport to a national sponsor. And I use this analogy of the NHL back in the late 90s. The NHL was crazy hot on getting teams into the Sun Belt in the South and Southern California and Florida, because then they could go to NBC and ABC and CBS and Fox and try to sell them on this concept of a national sport that had national reach because there was teams in every corner of the country. Kind of worked a little bit for the NHL at first because they got that Fox deal. It collapsed later and you couldn't find them anywhere except for Versus and some other networks. And of course, it's recovered now and they're incidentally on ESPN as well. I think Liberty's now in a spot where they feel that their product has significant value and they're going to be shopping around. So the deal with ESPN ends at the end of this year and they will certainly be shopping it around because they're not going to be taking a cut rate deal anymore. I think the thing that we need to be cautious about though is that F1 ratings in the US are still very low. I mean, it's great. Like if you if you look at success purely measured as a comp, comparative growth, that's cool. That's exciting. That's a great number. You and I do it all the time, right? Like we talk about our growth week over sure. week, month over month, year over year. We don't really know how yep. other shows perform because uh, podcast metrics are very well concealed behind an iron curtain. But what we can look at is, hey, how are we growing? And I think Formula One is seeing good comps, but at a million, one and a half million viewers a week on, on ESPN, that's not great, especially considering there's no ads, especially when considering Canada, which was one-tenth the population, posts only at 50% like lower number than does does ESPN. So again, we should be excited. It's exciting times. But I think that when they sell this deal on to another network or potentially back to ESPN or ABC, because of course that's one one larger company, I, I think I think it's going to be with the understanding that there's expected growth still in the pipeline. And we don't necessarily know when it's going to slow or stall or stop or decline. But I think any network that takes it on is going to be very, very um ambitious or generous in how it expects the sport to to grow. And Formula One, like I said, certainly isn't going to get a, take a cut rate deal. I think the one thing that American viewers need to be very conscious of is that if you're going to continue consuming Formula One on broadcast TV, the gift that you've gotten in the last three years with ESPN, aka no ads during the race, that's probably going to come to an end. It's going to be very similar to Canada where ads are going to inconveniently pop up at the most important point of any given race. So if you don't like that and you have cut the cable, I would still say the F1 TV Pro app is fantastic. And ultimately, I think that's where F1 wants to get everybody anyways, because they don't have to deal with a, a middleman when it comes to packaging up and distributing their product. 
Yeah, you know, you've raised a couple of really good points there. I mean, one or number one, I should say, this is in the 1990s. So we're not all going to our cable TV provider to make sure that we have the package that includes exactly channels or wherever the networks that, that are going to broadcast Formula One. So like you so rightly said, is a lot of people are tuning in. I watch everything now exclusively on F1 so do TV. I. It's my go-to for, for for everything. It's just a it's it's a wonderful one-stop shop. But the other thing you've mentioned this before a long, long time ago. We don't know how many people are going to the darker, dodgy. Oh, exactly! Great call. You know, on um, you know, like on these uh, dodgy streams, right? We'll, we'll never figure that out. But you know that it, you. The, the one thing I think, uh, like, like you so rightly say, is that will turn people off from like the, the network uh, TV experience is you know, the fact that they will probably bring back those commercial breaks. It's not going to be like the old days where they actually break and cut to a commercial. It's going to be a picture in picture thing. Totally. It'll take the, the, you got the it. race. It'll be minimized to like one quarter of the screen or whatever it is. And then you're going to see whatever the, the advertisements are. But the thing is, you're going to lose that audio from the race. And I don't know if it's just a coincidence or the, the producers are extremely uh, clever, no Formula One, but they always seem to cut to the the, the, the commercials whenever it's about the time for, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, for uh, pit stops and things like that. And then when you get down to the last 10, 15 laps of the race, where you know that people are tuning in, especially when it's an exciting race, that you're getting more and more uh, advertisements. And especially, <laughs> you, you know, when you get like the race that we had in Saudi two weeks ago, that was exciting stuff, yeah. the way that guys were fighting back and forth and you're, you're they're trading positions once or twice a lap and this is going on for multiple laps. That's going to just be such a buzzkill for a lot of people and that those that that have that opportunity and, and that, that can afford it. Although, I mean, you know, if you're going to a network TV, nothing's free to air anymore. I mean, you're going to be paying one way or another. I think that will push a lot of people to the pay platforms like F1 TV. I mean, like I say, I, I, I pay for it. I think it's it's a great platform and it's uh, it's a really, really good uh, service for yeah, what you get. Yeah, totally agree. It'll be interesting. You know, I mean, they, they've thrown out uh, those names like Amazon Prime and Netflix is uh, potentially being like the home of like Formula One. Like th- there's been some mention of those those providers in the past. And who, who knows if that'll ever happen? M- maybe not just yet, but maybe one day in the future. Okay, Mark, next story. And this is one that uh, you'll probably be uh, very familiar with. Um, I'm being a little bit uh, kind of silly, but uh, anyways, apparently Formula One is just giving the drivers a, a bit of a friendly reminder of not to wear too much or not to wear any jewelry during tracks. Yeah, so this does resonate with me. It does resonate with me because for the listeners at home that don't know, I am all about my bling and my chains. I, I don't have my ears pierced, but if I could afford diamond studs, I totally would. Uh, so I saw this, to be totally honest, and to be fair, it kind of bubbled up on the news story because there was a lot of controversy on Reddit and Twitter about the fact that this is targeted, it's targeted, there's a specific driver that's being targeted in this case. This is not a new regulation. So it's in the sporting regs. It's been in place since 2005. So long before any driver on the grid short of Fernando Alonso was in in Formula One. 
this is just a safety piece. The reality is, and I'll be honest, when I used to get on my sport bike and I used to head out, I would never, I would take off my rings. I would take off my chains. I wanted nothing. And I think when you're talking about Formula One, in the event that you're in a crash or an accident and you're talking about safety crews trying to extract you out of the car or get you out of your race suit or put out fire, the last thing that they need to contend with potentially is is metal earrings, a metal chain around your neck. They can become heat points or points of heat, flash points, rings that could lead to amputations. Like they're, they're not productive to have in the car and people can't see them anyway. So I think this is just the, a reflection of the fact that we have a couple of new race directors this year. This was a memo that they had sent out to the teams as a reminder. And I think it's just totally fair. I don't believe it's targeted. I hope it's not targeted for any specific reason, but I think it's just a good memo that this is in the sporting regulation. Clearly people don't know about it because if they did, it wouldn't have caused so much fury and, and noise online today. But I think it's a good thing. And I think yeah. the drivers are are wise enough. And you see, for instance, when Lewis gets out of his car, he oftentimes he'll walk over to a member of the team and they'll hand him his watch. They'll hand him some jewelry and things like that. These drivers know better, but it's in the sporting regulations for a reason, because back in 2004, it was a major issue where you did have drivers getting into the cars with multiple earrings and nose rings and chains, and it simply wasn't safe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's uh, targeted either. And I, I don't think it's uh, people, the drivers uh, flaunting the rules. It's just if they don't get enforced or totally agree, people get casual and it's just like, you know, we, we haven't had that reminder. I mean, well, I, I see that all the time at uh, at my work with the, the the guys that go out onto construction sites and things like that. We always have to remind them about wearing their PPE yeah. and stuff like that, because if you don't give them that uh, reminder, you know, people just, you know, we, we get lazy. It's just part of the human totally. condition. And uh, I, I don't think it's and, and I mean, we were so we were, the whole world was so mad last December about the fact that the r- rules weren't followed. But now that some of these rules are being surfaced as reminders and nobody was penalized here, no one was ostracized and called out yeah. specifically. But it's good to remind people of some of these regulations. That's why they're there to protect people. They're there for safety. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next. um, Oh, yeah, I know what I wanted to talk about is Ferrari's expecting what they call a significant power increase by the time we get to the Spanish Grand Prix in a couple of uh, weeks uh, from now. Um, Anyways, uh, the they're saying that uh, they've recovered most of the power compared to last season. Compared, you know, despite the introduction of the new E10 fuel, and uh, it seems that Ferrari's also. I wouldn't say sandbagging, but it sounds like they're they're not really showing what their engine is uh, completely capable of. So, I mean, they've looked really, really good through the first couple of races of the season. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not this is just maybe something that's floated out into the ether that's got nothing to it. Or if uh, by the time we get to Barcelona in about a month's time, whether or not uh, these these performance gains will be, I'm very curious as what as to what these performance gains are from. Right, we talked about in the last month the fact that much of the engine is now frozen as of March 1st. The following components are frozen. This is from RacingNews365.com. On March 1st, the internal combustion engine, the turbocharger, the MGUH, the exhaust, the fuel system, and the oil system were all frozen. The only components within the power unit package currently that are still 
that are still modifiable in the sense that they haven't been homologated yet are the MGUK, the control electronics and the energy store. So the battery. So most of the engine is frozen. So there's very little that these teams can be tweaking at this point to extract any incremental power. But if they come to Spain and that power unit is operating in a high, even higher level, um, goodness help the rest of the grid because they've looked so great and so fast so far. Yeah, I, I really can't get over the the way that the Ferrari's really impressed through the first couple of races of the season. I mean, they they really have been nowhere the last uh, couple of years. I mean, we've had this discussion plenty of times in the past and the reasons why that happened. I mean, there, there was like, use the, the, the term earlier shenanigans. I mean, there were shenanigans going on with Ferrari. There was that secret deal that they had with the FIA, which still bugs me to me this too. day. That that's Journalists, where are you? Get on this. Yeah, I mean, it's like it went to completely underground. It's been sent to Area 51 or something that's above top secret that is never going to see the light of day. And that that just really rankles me. It's just like, where is the transparency? You know, it, it's just like, I, I know that they, they did the right thing eventually uh, when it came to like Abu Dhabi and the whole, you know, the shenanigans there for, you know, not to downplay that situation, but it's... Um, it, it, I just feel that they 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 caved to the pressure this time to what happened at Abu Dhabi last year, and that the, the Ferrari thing is so far in the rearview mirror that it'll never come up now. But still, it just bugs me that it was never made known. It's just like they they, they did something, and it warranted a penalty, and it, it just there's no further. Uh, there's no further disclosure as to what the infraction was and what the actual penalty was. And I mean, we, we can speculate there were those, uh, you know, those statements made by Mika Salo. What was it right. on that Twitch stream that basically said they were running an illegal fuel map. And that kind of like really caused it. It was a storm in a, a teacup for a couple of days and then it kind of died. Right. But anyhow, it, I'm, I'm assuming now they're on the up and up because they really downplayed their expectations over the past year and a half, two years. And they said, you know what? We're not looking at 21. We're not, or sorry, 20. We're not looking at 21. We're looking at 22 or 23 as a realistic time frame to where we can be competitive again, to win races, to compete for championships like that. And so far, they've been true to their word. And I say that based on a very small sample size of two races. But I mean, based on what we've seen, I mean, Charles has looked good. The cars look great. And Carlos, I think science has to tend to step it up a bit because they clearly have a good car. And it, it's just uh, you, you can't help but feel a little bit excited about Ferrari right now. If, if you're a Tifosi or Tifoso, whatever this, you know, the, the singular is for a Ferrari fan um, about the way that this car looks, how it's performing. And then I think you have to be doubly excited on top of that if they're hinting at that there's more potentially to come in an era that we're not really, you know, there, there's not that much room to exploit when it comes to engine, engine development. If you right? don't know what we're talking about, midway through the 2019 season, Ferrari looked amazing and it looked like they were potentially going to scoop two championships away from Mercedes. And then all of a sudden, yep. all of their power just dropped off. 
they just dropped off. All of their top end power was gone and they were getting rocked in the straights by Red Bulls and the Mercedes. And nobody really knows what happened except that there was a conversation between them and the FIA and suddenly their cars weren't as fast. And it's been widely speculated, though never officially reported, but it's been speculated that they were running an illegal fuel map where they were somehow circumventing the sensors that measured the amount of fuel that was getting into the combustion chamber. So they were finding a way to trick the system in essence and put more fuel into the combustion chamber so they could generate more powerful from the or more power from the ice than intended. So we don't know this. It's just purely speculated. And then the other piece of speculation, and I'm going to go totally off the off the charts on this one. But the other thing that was speculated is that the reason it was never disclosed and the reason there was never any financial penalty is because the FIA didn't catch them. It was that they were turned in. Somebody identified it from another team and turned the information over to the FIA. And the FIA, in turn, for them showing them what they were doing, so they basically said to Ferrari, like, look, we'll let you off the hook. You just have to show us how you did this, how you can circumvented our controls and our sensors. If you show us how you did it, we'll let you off the hook so we can make sure nobody else is doing it. So that's kind of been broadly speculated as to the outcome. But the thing that I would add as well is I was upset that it was the that the that the circumvention that the malfeasance, the whatever it was they were doing, the fact that it was never broadly communicated and there was no transparency was one thing. But I think what really upset me even more is that this should have been absolute fodder for journalists somewhere. Somebody that was accredited, somebody that's close to the industry, somebody with contacts, they should have dug deep and a year later had a 20-page long-form story out digging into what happened with great sources inside the factory with suppliers that spoke to what happened. And not only do we not get the transparency from the FIA, but but nobody in the business ever reported on it. And sometimes you'll hear people on Sky, a wink, wink, and a nudge, nudge to, hey, Ferrari had that wink, wink power unit in 2019. Like they'll allude to something funny happening, but they'll never accuse them. And then nobody's ever done any investigative journalism about this, which is a real shame because that would be one hell of a story. It, it would be fascinating. And I, I think you um, you took the, the the words almost right out. Of, I wouldn't say out of my mouth because I was kind of thinking about it when you were, t- when you were just... I guess talking about those, excuse me, those, um, your theory, right? And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe the reason it was never made public was that Ferrari did something and then it was, you know, the, the, the FIA caught on, but because it was maybe inside of a gray area, that it wasn't technically totally. Illegal. That's fair. So they, that's why, you know, they, they didn't disclose it and they didn't want people to know what they were doing. But, you know, what, what you're saying, you know, makes. In, in the live chat right now, by the way, the Naj 007 from Edmonton, hashtag conspiracy pod and then <laughs> hashtag conspiracy pod and then in brackets, I'm here for it. Okay, we better move on to the next topic. Oh, he's going to love this. Okay, so um, uh, Apollo th- uh, 11 never went to the moon. So the, the, the moon landing conspiracy coming up long form right after. I'm just kidding. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, why don't yeah, we sounds take great. one final break and then we will come back. Got a couple more uh, stories, not conspiracies to talk about. And we got some listener emails and tweets. We'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. 
we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Welcome back to the show. A couple of uh, quick news stories that we want to hit on before we get uh, into the uh, listener emails. So first of all, Sebastian Vettel back in the cockpit in Australia this weekend. Uh, so we'll be out for the, the the practice sessions, which they are just in between FP1 and FP2 at the moment, which is uh, really, really cool. So there's some upgrades for Australia, new front end or sorry, front wing end plates for Red Bull, Ferrari, a new diffuser. Alpine's going to rock a new floor, a rear brake covers. McLaren are going to have new uh, winglets. Aston Martin, a rear wing. Williams, beam wing, floor, front wing, front brake duct. And Haas is going to try out a new diffuser. And this is kind of a cool uh, cool one that uh, you dug up. Uh, I noticed that we don't have the list. I mean, we can try and go through there. But apparently 14 different Australian Formula One drivers have uh, started a Grand Prix. Obviously, Danny Ricardo, Mark Webber, and Alan Jones are three. So I'll have to do some really hard thinking to come up with the other 11. Um, so uh, Nikita Mazepin, former Haas driver, blames cancel culture for losing his seat at Haas. And Haas speaking of which, uh, broke a night curfew in Australia because they had to rebuild Schumacher, or not rebuild, but they had to build him a completely new car, which was written off uh, after his big moment in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago. Or a couple of years ago. How can you tell it's getting late on a Thursday night? I've lost all concept of time. Anyways, they had to rebuild uh, Mick Schumacher's car after his big uh, crash in Saudi a couple of weeks ago. They have no spare chassis left for the rest of the uh, the week. And rest of the year and that means that each team um or they only have or they have no curfews left anyways what happened to mr hamilton uh, he's there but uh, frozen mark uh, maybe just uh, try reconnect here and uh, we'll see if i can uh, let you in in the meantime, uh, I'm going to go to some listener questions. The first one comes from Debbie, and Debbie has to say, Hey guys, I love the show. Our anniversary is coming up, and I'm hoping from some good recommendations for F1-themed gifts. Thanks very much. Hmm, I'm not too sure about this one. You know, the, the one thing that I really like when it comes to uh, Formula One uh, and memorabilia that uh, I haven't... Um, you know, I haven't done or I haven't bought yet, um, but I know that Mark uh, has uh, a number of them. Is the is the uh, one quarter scale helmet um, that that uh, that they produce? Uh, anyways, Mark's uh, dropped off here. I'm going to see if he can. I can get him to rejoin, uh, and uh, so we can finish off the show together. So I'll try and stitch it together. Yeah, I mean things like that. I think are always cool. The the, the one things that I always like. Um, is, is any kind of like F1 merch, shirts, jackets, hats. But I mean, if, if it's an anniversary, especially if it's an, a milestone uh, anniversary for you guys, you know, if, if you could afford it, why not? Why why not uh, try and get tickets to a race? I don't know. Um, Mark put this one in. I don't know if this came via Twitter or via the email. So I don't know whereabouts you are, whether or not it's feasible or reasonable for you guys to uh, to maybe attend a Grand Prix in person. But certainly that would be uh, one to do. My wife and I did that for an anniversary. I mean, it's going back a while ago now because, uh, you know, our kids are just kind of going through this um, that stage now that it's difficult for us to get away as a couple. But uh, that certainly was uh, a wonderful 
wonderful thing. So Farnaz says, Salam, hello. My friend put me onto your show and I really like it so far as a new F1 fan. Mark H, excited Mark in bracket, always uh, says he speaks Farsi. I can confirm that he does. Uh, well, I can confirm that I don't speak Farsi and Mark speaks a language I'm not familiar with and he says it's Farsi. So I'm going to take him at face value. So uh, Farnaz wants to know what languages uh, do you gents know? Have you thought about doing the show in different languages? So obviously English is one. That is our our, our first language. Um, I come from a Dutch family. My mother's Dutch. I speak uh, Dutch fluently. I also speak a bit of French. I speak German. I speak a little bit of uh, Spanish um, to a certain uh, degree. I've tried learning some Asian languages. I've tried to learn a little bit of Japanese, a little bit of uh, Mandarin. It was obviously in Vancouver, a big, uh, you know, many different uh, Asian communities here. So that would be, uh, you know, languages, uh, you know, uh, Mandarin, especially in Cantonese, there would be opportunity to use that on a regular basis. But I find just for my mind that uh, Asian languages are very, very difficult for me to um, to try and get my mind around. Uh, European languages, I find a, a little bit uh, easier to, to learn. And uh, I obviously have had a lot of uh, opportunity to speak and practice them. And especially when I go to, to, to Europe, I love uh, being able to, or, or wherever I go, when we went to Japan a number of years ago, learned a enough uh, Japanese so I could at least kind of uh, navigate my way around and and at least try and make make myself uh, understood. So Mark, welcome back. I've got you again here. So I was just uh, going through the uh, the listener questions. Just was talking about the one from uh, Farnaz. He wanted to know, he said, well, you you claim that you speak Farsi. I said, you speak a language that I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with. You say it's Farsi. And I said, you know, Mark is a good guy. I take him at his <laughs> all right. words that when he says he knows Farsi, you know, so it's it's all good. So, okay, let's put put your, uh, let's put it to the test. Why did you say something in Farsi? And uh, we'll let the folks at home render a conclusion as to whether so, or not this is an accurate so statement. So I have a kernel panic on my Mac, which has been, incredibly problematic later or lately. And I hope I did not lose my audio because I thought this was a great podcast so far. Um, Farsi, I, I, I like to think I'm really good in. Arabic is the language that I want to learn. And there's a common-ish Arabic kind of alphabet there. Man, Farsi, Yakami Baladam, Chon Hamsaram Irania, Va Pesarim Esma Parsa Hast, Vasa Parsa, Tuye Hunemun, Farsi, Sobat Mikonim. So, my Farsi's getting there. I think my pronunciation's a little bit kind of American at times, but and I was basically just saying, hey, my wife is Persian. That's why I speak Farsi and our son's name is Parsa. And for our son, we speak Farsi at home. So I, I love it. I love that I'm learning a second language and I would absolutely love it. And one of my visions, my goals is that eventually I want to be able to host a or produce a Farsi Formula One podcast, because I don't think there are any out there. Uh, I'm also incredibly excited about Arabic simply because I've been able to develop so many great relationships with people through Formula One in the Gulf countries, so the Emirates and Saudi um, and even Oman. Um, So yeah, that's the language that I want to start learning, but Farsi. Now, I'm not like you. Like It's so funny, and I've shared this before. I will put articles in the outline for the show in Dutch or German or French, knowing that I can't read them and I've had to translate them and you will read them and translate them in your head on the fly, which is absolutely incredible. So I'm nowhere near the daily, daily world of multilinguistics, but hopefully one day I'll get there. 
You know, it, the, the funny thing about speaking languages that I always find is like w- when you're learning, you often, what, what you do is you'll think in your mother tongue and you will kind of like translate on the fly. But when you get to a certain level of fluency, it you just automatically start thinking in, and, and speaking in that language. And that, that that's a fascinating thing. And I've often found that when you get to, and I found it's, it's probably just because I'm weird. But I, I knew when I was really fluent in Dutch, which we kind of always spoken a little bit growing up in uh, around when I was you know, at home as kids. But my parents didn't really want to speak it too much because, you know, being immigrants, you know, my mom, especially my dad being English, he didn't really care. But my mom always thought that it might be kind of, you know, especially way back in the day, like in the 80s, right. that, you know, I guess that she felt that if we had too much of like a different language, it might kind of like hold us back or so. I, I don't know, but it was a bit of a shame. But when I was older and I was more interested in, in my roots and started going to Holland all the time, especially for like uh, holidays and spending ex- extended period of time. And then I lived there for many, many years in my twenties. And I found when I got to like a real level of fluency that I'd actually wake up in the morning, realize when I was dreaming, I was dreaming in Dutch. So that's awesome. Know, like maybe that's just because I'm weird. But it was funny what you said about your you know, your pronunciation in 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 Farsi sounds like you you know so it's more Americanized. But that that's the same. You know, we have our own dialects, we have our own accents, anyways. And I think that's just I think that's just normal because unless you live in a place, then you, you know that um, you're always just going to. It's just a learned thing because when I when I go to Holland, like people think that you know I'm from Utrecht, which is uh, you know it's it's on the west coast or it's not on the coast, but it's, it's on the west side of the country, a little excuse me, a little bit inland. And I worked there for a number. I I, I worked and lived there for a while, so that's when when I speak there. That's you know I I, I spend a significant portion of my life there. So that's you know how my pronoun you know, pronunciation and my my, my I love my it dialect and my my accent. And your so, kids, your kids are also not to reveal too much information, but your kids go to French immersion. So up here in Canada, especially in Vancouver, yeah. you have a choice of sending your kids to an English public school, a French public school, or now you can also offer your kids Mandarin public school, and we call them immersion programs. But like I was saying a couple yeah. minutes ago in, in Farsi, we made the decision that with our son, we wanted Farsi to be his first language. And of course, he speaks English at daycare. But one of the cool things about Farsi is it's kind of a modern language in the fact that it doesn't have gendered pronouns. There's no he, she. It's always just oh, okay. in Farsi, it would be u or un. So you would use u or un for a girl or for a boy, a man or a woman. So it's kind of cool in that sense. So my son, when he's speaking English, he really struggles with gendered pronouns because he doesn't know who's a he or who's a she. So mama's, <laughs> his mom is always a he and I'll often be a she. And then in Farsi, they don't have separate verbs for eating. So in English, we have a, far, a verb for eating, which is to eat, eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have one to drink, which is drinking. But in Farsi, there's just one Hordan. So you use it for eating or drinking. So he'll often come to us in, in far in English. He's like, Mama, I really want to eat some water. And I just laugh hysterically, which is like the worst parental thing ever. But uh, it is cute because in his head, he's translating because it's not his first language. So he's translating on the fly as best as he can. Yeah, that's great. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, and he'll pick it up, you know. And, you know, kid, that's the thing with kids, you know, the, you teach them when, when they're younger, they pick up totally. languages so quickly. Totally. So, I mean, you know, this is the ideal time to, like, expose your little guy to as many languages as possible because this is the best time that he, he can learn. When you get older, I wouldn't say it becomes more difficult, but, you know, when, when you've got so many different things going on in, you know, in, you know, life happens, it's difficult to sit down and try and do Oh, for sure. Things. But I wanted to circle back uh, when, when you draw off the um you, the you know when you lost your connection there 
I went over the first one from Debbie. She was talking about the you know, the anniversary coming up and some uh, good recommendations for F one themed gifts. The one that I said that I, I really like are the you know the quarter scale or whatever they are. The miniature helmets are cool ones. And then I always like any kind of like team merch. But I said, you know, one thing I thought was kind of cool. Maybe you've got a couple of other other ideas. I said one thing that we did for milestone anniversaries we actually went to a grand prix oh damn that's so good i thought that that, that oh that, you're that setting the bar good. so I high so i saw this question and my first thought was and it goes right back to what we were talking about 20 minutes ago that if you don't have a subscription to f1 tv pro that's something you can both enjoy but if you want to physically give that special somebody something and they have a particular driver that they really like i really like the one half scale helmets they're a couple of hundred bucks when yep. you factor in shipping but they look great on a bookshelf they look great on a desk they're really 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 cool and yep. they're particularly especially detailed um Debbie, thank you for emailing. That's fantastic. I should note as well that the the question that you and I were just answering a second ago from Farnaz, um, Farnaz is typically a, a women's name too. So a couple of great uh, female listeners off the top. I love it. That's awesome. So we'll go on to the next one. And Omar is sending a, a message here from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And Omar's uh, question or comment is, uh, we always hear about uh, drivers from different backgrounds breaking into Formula One, like Lewis Hamilton, Hamilton and Zhu Guan Yu. Uh, when do you think we'll see somebody with an Arab background break into Formula One? This is a great question. You, you've got more knowledge about uh, that part of the world. Do you have a yeah. line on any drivers that uh, that you might be looking at? O- Omar that, makes... That may or may not. I mean, that's, that's a great point because we we see drivers from obviously we, there, there's european drivers overrepresented or over overrepresented yep. i mean we have two canadian drivers in f1 no american drivers you see south american drivers from time to time uh then i mean we've got two asian drivers with the uh, with yuki being japanese and Zhu Guan Yu being chinese but you know that that he, he that's a great question i honestly i don't know that is honestly i totally agree when i saw this question and for somebody that spends a lot of time in that region i was i was pretty embarrassed that this isn't necessarily something that i thought about before we talked about the the middle east the region specifically the gulf we, we talk about the number of races there we're in bahrain and we're in qatar and we're in the emirates and we're now in saudi and we talk about there isn't enough asian representation chinese japanese korean there isn't enough um southeast asian representation but when you talk about the broader region mm-hmm. asia in, in the middle east nobody ever talks about the arab world specifically which is which is really unfortunate but there are some talents there um i would say that hamda and amna al kabasi out of the emirates are doing a really great job of bringing exposure to karting and competitive levels of open wheel racing to to young talented drivers and I, I think they've got a really great social media presence i think they're very 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 capable in front of the camera in terms of articulating their desire to be great drivers they're both competing in formula three in in europe right now which is very very exciting on this side of the water, there's a driver in the ARCA, uh, I think Maynard series named Tony Bridinger, and her mom is Lebanese, which is very, very cool. So you've got some Arab representation on this side of the ocean as well. But I think one of the things that I'm most hardened about, and I haven't seen this before, is the sheer volume of interest in Formula One in the Arab world, whether it's young Saudis or Emiratis or Lebanese, um, or even if you want to talk about 
um, Iran, there's a ton of interest from that region of the world in Formula One. We're just not exposed to it because we speak a different language. I think we are so invested in North America and we see Formula One through a British lens because that's where so much of the Formula One media is. And they're the ones that are presenting the sport to us that I think sometimes we're blind to the fact that there's intense passion and interest and, and affection for Formula One in other parts of the world. Like you and I don't know how Formula One is, is covered in, in the PRC. We don't necessarily know how it's covered in, in Japan. And we only see glimpses of it when we go there to race, because that's the only window that we have into that region. But now having started to learn the language, at least in the Arab world, I'm beginning to see how much passion and interest there is in Formula One there. So I, I don't have a lead. I, I would say that there's we're probably closer to it than not close to it. Um, and I would assume that hopefully in the next five years, we'll have a, we'll have a lead on a couple, hopefully of really great young drivers coming out of that region, because I think that would help to stimulate interest in that part of the world even more. Yeah, absolutely. And now the final, uh, question Greg F1 person. Oh, you, you got it. So I reached out, I reached out via Twitter right before the show and said, my friend, we've been talking for so long. You send us great tweets and great emails. We don't know your name. So he got back to me right away graciously and said, my name's Greg. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, the week we got this wonderful long uh, email from uh, somebody that was the F one person, and you know, as 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 thrilled as I am to hear a, a name, I was kind of hoping that maybe this was like somebody's like like prominence, like burner email account. Like uh, I think maybe this is Gunther's like burner email account. And then I started reading through like the questions and the comments and the emails. Like I started hearing them in my head as, as if it was being pronounced by Gunther Steiner, you know, and I've watched way too much uh, drive to survive. Anyway, <laughs> it was an awesome long email. We could literally do an entire show on it. There was a couple of questions that were more technically cited. We're going to save those because I think that the perfect person to address those would be to Tim. Hurley. Yeah, I agree. And we talk to Tim all the time, so it won't be too long before Tim's back on the show and he's the perfect person to uh, direct those more technical and strategy type questions to he'll be able to, to answer it so much better than either of I uh, could anyways uh, the email or part of it goes as uh, follows hello to uh, to you both my apologies for an email rather than a tweet but I just had to uh, uh, enough to ask and share that I couldn't resist I'll still try to be brief so one of the questions or one of the comments is, is there still any hope for an American power unit manufacturer with the new engine? I'd love to see Andretti maybe push for his entry back to 2026 and then come into the grid partnered with and powered by Ford, for example. That would be amazing. With where Formula One is headed, I think any U.S.-based auto manufacturer will abs- be absolutely negligent not to want to get in. Yeah, I, you know, I totally agree that it, it seems that the way that the sport is just growing in leaps and bounds in the, uh, the North America, especially in the United States at the moment, that it almost makes it, I wouldn't say a no-brainer, but I can't help but wondering if perhaps in boardrooms across the country that it's some of these big auto manufacturers are maybe just kind of watching what's happening with the whole VW group slash Audi slash Porsche situation before jumping in and then also maybe taking a look with what's happening with Andretti and their real desire. I mean, there, there's so much noise coming out of the Andretti camp that they want to get into Formula One. Obviously, it didn't work out uh, the, last summer when they tried to buy out the Sauber team and get an entry that way. But, you, you know, th- there, there was uh, comments uh, not so long ago that they're going to buy an entry into the, onto the grid at some point. Toto said, you know, you don't bother unless you got a billion dollars to play with and you know Michael didn't seem too phased by that so I I can't help but wondering 
and I, I have nothing to, to, to say. I can't prove it to the contrary. Uh, but I, I just can't help but think that this is a situation that, that somebody somewhere must be watching. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? Let's take a look at this. So Indy, Indy, which is almost predominantly an American series, almost the entire calendar happens in the United States, has two engine suppliers right now. They have Chevy and they have Honda. NASCAR, which is for all intents and purposes, exclusively an American-based championship. And they have what, 500 races a year? I'm being a little... I'm being a little silly, but I think they have a calendar of say 30 races in the playoffs, blah, 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 blah. They have three engine suppliers. They have Chevy and Ford and Toyota. So big picture, you know, the most lucrative racing series in North America in NASCAR only has two suppliers from a a North American company. You've got Ford and you've got Chevy. So really when you say, hey, can an American manufacturer come on board? Well, it's going to be one of those two. It's going to be Chevy or Ford. And then I think the question has to be that best case, best case, let's say Formula One had four races in the United States. Are those four races going to give the American engine manufacturer incremental exposure to help drive sales of passenger cars or passenger trucks in a way that they don't already accomplish. Like I think they would need to find a way to see incremental value in doing this. Like obviously Chevy mm-hmm. dominates Indy because they're the only American based manufacturer producing engines. And when you look at NASCAR, both Ford and Chevy are already in there. What value does having a American engine manufacturer, well, certainly for the sport, there's some prestige because it's always better to have more engine manufacturers. I think the hard sell for Chevy or for Ford would be, are we going to sell more passenger cars and trucks because we're involved in this championship? And really Chevy's presence outside of North America, and again, they they sell cars in the Middle East and they have sub-brands throughout continental Europe and of course through Australia and things like that with Opel and Holden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But are they going to sell more vehicles as a byproduct of being involved in the sport. I don't know. But I think what we're seeing with Volkswagen, you make a really great point with Volkswagen. Volkswagen is forcing Formula One, the FIA, Liberty, and the teams to accept massively simplified engine formulas to make it more attractive for new entries to come into the sport. If it was as complex as it was in 2014, you wouldn't have Volkswagen, Porsche, Audi sniffing around as much as they are. But maybe you're right. Maybe there's an American manufacturer. Maybe it's Ford. Maybe it's Chevy. And they're watching the way it's playing out now. They're watching the development. And maybe when that 2026 formula comes out, they'll take another peek. And then they'll look to see how successful Audi or Porsche are with their entries. And then they can make a decision. So maybe... I don't know. I don't think it's likely anytime soon, but we've certainly seen crazier things happen. The one thing that I would add is that if somebody's coming into the sport, they've got to be dedicated for a decade. You you very rarely experience success early on, even with a simplified engine formula. I think Toyota is the perfect example of a team that came in, splashed around hundreds of millions of dollars, never even sniffed success, and they're out of the sport after seven years. I think it's better a team doesn't enter mm-hmm. than comes and leaves because it delegitimizes the championship. And, and like Connie said yeah, in the chat, sorry, I'll just add one more thing. She just added, Connie says, it's also incredibly risky for a manufacturer if they aren't winning or near the top. So it's one thing to come into the sport. It's another to come into the sport and not be hyper competitive because then you're not selling any cars from dealer lots. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, especially if we get, say, three, four races in the continental United States, I mean, they're going to be spread out over, uh, you know, over the entirety of the season. I mean, we got Miami coming up in just, a, what, about a month from now, and then we're not going to be at Coda until the middle of October. Right. So, I mean, there's a six-month gap in, in between, whereas with you have, like, Indy and NASCAR, you're going to be racing all the time. As, as much as I'd like to see, like, that, uh, like an American manufacturer in the sport, one way or another, I can't help but thinking that maybe in a boardroom somewhere they're thinking, yeah, that, that would be great. We could do that it would be great to compete on the the, the highest level at the pinnacle so-called of uh, of global motorsport but the the other question that immediately pops into my mind for a company like ford or chevrolet does it then become a bit of a vanity project yeah because if, it, if it's not driving you know the the, the, the old saying you'll Good sell, call. win on sunday sell on monday right if it doesn't like if they're not i guess driving that uh, that that marketing or they're they're getting that exposure to sell cars in the in the say in the domestic market where that's you know the most of their sales are going to be right does it then become a useful marketing exercise or is it more of like a vanity project a couple of minutes ago and i know we need to wrap up and i think we're done with that subject but a couple of minutes ago i had some technical issues and i had to drop off and reboot did you touch on the nikita mazapan topic Oh, only uh, that uh, he'd been canceled, and that's right when you just uh, put through into the chat. You're having some connection issues, so I, I didn't say anything more other than I'm you know, going to apologize in advance because I'm going to make a little of extra work for you, and I'm sending you a file right now with an attachment called sensor beep short dot wav. With all due respect. Nikita Mazepan, because I have zero sympathy for somebody whose father is complicit in a war in Ukraine that has made mm. life a living hell for tens of millions of people. So I think we should probably be done with Nikita Mazepan at this point. I don't think there's any further mm. reason to talk about him. You're a colleague. Clearly, his father is very close to the president of a country that is committing war crimes by the thousand in a neighboring country but i think we're done with him and i think the formula one press should probably step away as well so i sent you the wave file so you can bleep that out but just as a point of reference i apologize i apologize but i just had to get that out because i saw that story this week and you know he he held a press conference basically by himself to argue that he was a, a byproduct or a victim of cancel culture. Like, no, you weren't, my friend. Your father is an oligarch. You are complicit in this war. Your father is complicit in this war. And you clearly don't comprehend the fact that tens of millions of people's lives have been shattered by that war. And you're still looking for sympathy. No way. Get out of here. Yeah. And again, I'm all about being yeah. human. But this guy cannot be seen in the same light as other human beings at this point. Yeah. Sorry about that. Further to add. No, that's okay. You know, uh, I, I thought maybe you might have something uh, different. You're like, I thought you might have something insightful to, to say, or... but here you come like throwing slander. Well, no, it was funny. Be well, it wasn't funny because I got to that part of the like those sort of quick news hits that we we, we like to do, and then I, I you know I, I read through them, and then all of a sudden I got to that, and then all of a sudden it was silence. So I'm just like that. This seems very unHamilton like. <laughs> you know, to add a little bit more commentary right. to totally <laughs> to that, right? So, anyways, but yeah, no, nothing further to add. A bit, a bit of a downer to on the, that way to attend. But it's the, been the a great show. Week, it's been a lot of fun. It's been good. You know, it's been really interesting, like a lot of exciting things. And, you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of people over the last couple of days that you know, want to watch the, 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 the Australian Grand Prix. They're oh, it's going to be on so late. And I'm just like, yeah, so what? It's on like at 10 or 11 Pacific time on the weekend. It's just like, 
don't tell me you're going to bed on a Friday or Saturday night before 10 a, sorry, 10 PM at night. I'm just like, maybe I like to, I know I'm a night owl, but just like anybody that, you know, it's like, couldn't you even watch that in bed on your phone? For- totally. Totally. <laughs> Anyways, I shouldn't shame people and, and their sleeping habits, but I, I'm excited because this is one of the ones I like to stay up wait, or late and watch live. And it's like I said, off the top of the show, it's great that they're back in Australia. It's like it's been off the calendar way too I long. Agree. And I agree. I can't wait to see what this track is like come Dude, Sunday. And I'm sure you talked about this with, with Stuart. My friend, four DRS zones, as if it's not going to be fast enough. Yes. Four DRS zones. And I was actually reading a story the other day and I, I tweeted it and I, I apologize. I think it was from ABC, a, a Australian media outlet, but they had talked a little bit about the racecraft in the first couple of races. And I know we want to wrap this up, but it just came to mind and I want to share it. They talked about that prior to this year. DRS was really designed as an equalizer because there was so much dirty air coming off the back of the cars. DRS was really just a tool that helped subsidize for that lost speed. The fact that you're getting caught up in that turbulent air, that's all it was. It was an equalizer. It was supposed to just like equal the playing field when you have two cars racing each other. In the new world, the story had written, DRS is no longer an equalizer. DRS is a straight up weapon. You are now bringing a gun to a knife fight when you can whip out DRS and it completely changes the dynamic of a Grand Prix. And this race weekend, we're going to see a lap that has four DRS zones, four DRS activation spots. Like this is going to be crazy. I cannot wait to see what happens on the Grand Prix Sunday. Well, I think where they took that uh, chicane, that left-right combo on the backside of the track there, I think now that they've they, they've sort of, it's sort of dog legs to the right rather than that really brutal chicane, I think what Stu was saying is that they're going to be pushing 200 miles an hour on that backside of the circuit now, which is going to yeah. be fantastic. Before you go into the last combo set of um, corners, that combo right at the the, the, the latter end of the, 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 the lap there, which... I'm really looking forward to it. Anyways, we've talked enough uh, for for one night. Thank you all for uh, getting in touch. Thank you. Shout out to everybody that's in the in the live chat on the YouTube. Uh, sorry, the the live stream on YouTube uh, tonight. Uh, great uh, to have you all joining us tonight. Wonderful to have uh, all of you listening to the podcast as well. Pot. I can't say anything now. I I need more coffee. I was a podcat. I just uh, invented uh, something. Anyhow. Want to get in touch with us? Best way to do so on Twitter at ScooteryF1Pod. Email us at ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. That is it, my friends. Enjoy the Australian Grand Prix this weekend. And on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark H., have a great weekend. And we'll be back Sunday night to talk all about it, probably Sunday afternoon. We'll be early because of the time change. Uh, But that's it. Enjoy the race, guys. Take care. Bye for now.